Today's scripture reading is taken from Genesis 46, verses 1 to 7 and 26 to 27. Verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I, also, I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt." Verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. I think Elizabeth wanted to join you up here. I think that's why she was screaming. Let me get to where mom is. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark Collins. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, I've been nursing a sore throat uh, all week. Uh, it seems to be holding up for the moment. Uh, I did ask one of my daughters uh, how I sounded before I got up yesterday to preach. She rolled her eyes at me and shook her head. That was not encouraging. Uh, but uh, thankful to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, speakers at college graduations, high school graduations, have a tough job. They need to be inspirational, interesting, funny, and above all, brief. I don't remember much of my own college graduation speaker. I think it was an official in the government. It was extremely boring as I remember it. One of the most famous and inspirational graduation speeches in recent history was given by Steve Jobs to the graduates of Stanford University in 2005. It's well worth your time to go and listen to that speech. Uh, Steve Jobs famously did not graduate from college. Uh, he dropped out after just one semester, but he speaks to the, the Stanford grads and basically tells three stories about his life. And, and all the stories center around the idea that bad things that happen to you may actually have a good purpose d down the road. So he first tells the story of dropping out of college uh, after realizing that his parents couldn't really afford it. Uh, they were running out of money, so he, he drops out of, of school, but they allow him to, to audit, to, to drop into classes, and he just... 
Uh, because he's interested in calligraphy for some reason, he, he starts going to these calligraphy classes. Uh, he said it served absolutely no purpose that he knew of at the time. But then he shares that later on when they made the Macintosh computer uh, and they were designing the fonts that, that things would appear in, uh, he brought back what he had learned from those calligraphy classes. And so he says many of the fonts that we still use today uh, are from that seemingly useless thing at the time. So this painful reality of not being able to afford college actually led to something good down the road. He calls this story connecting the dots of life. And this is what he says. You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This, this approach has never let me down, and it has made all the difference in my life. I think it's a powerful message, especially coming from a, a true rags-to-riches story like Steve Jobs. I mean, college dropout becomes billionaire CEO of Apple and someone beloved by the masses. But I have to wonder whether the, the graduates of Stanford that day, or maybe they've wondered it since, have thought of a simple question. Steve, why should I trust that the dots will connect at all? I mean, how do I know that things didn't just happen to work out for you in the stories that you told us? And if I have to trust in something, how, how do I know that it's the right thing? I mean, I doubt very seriously that, that Steve Jobs applied the whatever principle very consistently in his life. If he did, I'm sure that it led him down many times. But in spite of that, I think Steve Jobs' message resonates. All of us want to believe that the ups and downs of our lives, and especially the downs, are working out for some good purpose. But how do we know if this is true? Even for the believer, even for the Christian sometimes, the, the dots of life are hard to connect, aren't they? Sometimes the ways of God are inscrutable to us. They're, they're hidden. We can't understand why we ended up in a certain place, why we're there, why, why some family tragedy happens, why some relationship can't be resolved or reconciled. I mean, you're supposed to be the chosen people of God and blessed by Him, but sometimes it doesn't seem that way. Well, you know, that would have been true. That would have been how the people of Israel felt during a 400-year stretch when they were in Egypt. I think it's hard for us to forget sometimes that the book of Genesis that we've been reading and working our way through, it was written by Moses to the people of God during a very, very difficult time for them, a time when they were in slavery. I mean, we're the people of God. We're chosen by Him. We're promised a land. Why are we living in slavery? What, what point is the blessing of God when we have nothing to our name? Iwu soyo. Why are we here? How did we get here? Well, the passage in front of us was written by Moses, as I said, to the people of God to help answer these questions. 
For that reason, it's an essential text, I think, for you and I as well, because the events in our lives often don't add up. They often don't make sense to us. I mean, if you're very young, very healthy, and currently very happy, maybe you just have to take my word for it. Life is often not going to make sense. So connecting the dots, it's, it's going to take wisdom that we don't have. It's going to take God's wisdom and a lot of patience. And you and I need to know how to live faithfully in the meantime. So that's what the text is teaching us. I'll give you the main idea of Genesis 46 and 47. We're doing two chapters. I'm not going to read it all. Uh, we read a part of it. I'll kind of jump around a bit. But, but write down this main idea. If you're taking notes... Jot it into your phone. Uh, it'll be a, a good thing for you to think about later today. The main idea is this. Trust God's provision on earth while making your home with him in heaven. Trust God's provision on earth while making your home with him in heaven. And those will form our two points, our two main points this morning. Number one Trust God's provision on earth. Trust God's provision on earth. And then number two, make your home with him in heaven. So I encourage you to, to make your way uh, in your Bible or pull, pull out the pew Bible. that We, we have pew Bibles now, uh, maybe in front of you, uh, around you. Uh, I think it's wonderful. This is personal opinion. No judgment on those using a mobile device but really useful to see it in, in, in black and white there in the text. So uh, if you want to open to page 37 of those pew Bibles, and if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're visiting with us today, maybe if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible with you, not stealing, not breaking the Ten Commandments. We want you to take that Bible home as a gift. Uh, it be wonderful for you to read and get familiar with it. So number one, trust God's provision on earth. Uh, let me give you a flyover, kind of an overview of these two chapters of Scripture. Uh, we read, Sarah read the, the beginning of chapter 46 there. We can see in verse 1 that Israel, so this is Jacob. Remember, he was renamed Israel by God in that midnight wrestling match uh, with the angel of the Lord. Israel means he struggles with God. But he's going down to Egypt. He's just finally found out what we've known all along, which is that his son Joseph is still alive. So he's heading down to Egypt. He stops at Beersheba. That's at the southern border of Israel to make sacrifices to the Lord. But then he's got this great wagon train of, of his uh, sons and their families and his grandsons and his granddaughters. They're, they're all headed down to Egypt and then in verse 8 to 26 uh, of the chapter, I didn't have Sarah read it mercil mercifully, uh, it's all the names, it's a genealogical list of those that went down to Egypt. Seventy in all, if we're just counting uh, the men, uh, more than that with the women. Um, so, so a great crowd headed down to Egypt. And then what we have at the balance of chapter 46, there is a reunion that we've waited for, this tearful reunion of Joseph and Jacob. Beginning of chapter 47, the first 12 verses, uh, we have an audience with Pharaoh. So Joseph brings his father, some of his sons, before Pharaoh. 
uh, and Pharaoh grants them to live in the land of Goshen, actually gives them a job to do, taking care of his livestock. And then verse 13 to 26 of, of chapter 47, we get the longest account of what the famine was actually like in Egypt, just a, a brutal time in many ways. And then the, chapter 47 concludes with uh, verse 27. You can see there Israel settling in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, And then there's this uh, final request that Jacob has of Joseph that he not be buried in Egypt. All right, that's a a flyover of the chapter. Uh, I want to emphasize first in this first point, as we see the puzzle pieces of Jacob's life come together here, the first thing that stands out is all the ways that God has provided for him. Uh, let's, let's think about three ways we see that provision. First of all, we see it in terms of offspring. The, the list of these children is not something that we should take for granted. They certainly would not have. Uh, children, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Remember, that was God's promise to Abraham all the way back in chapter 15. As countless as the grains of sand on the seashore. With all the wandering and all the trials and all the troubles and tribulations that they've gone through, amazing that there are these 70 descendants, the the makings of a, a nation of Israel. So first of all, offspring have been provided by God. But secondly, food. They had no idea that this famine was coming. God knew. Historically, many families of people, many tribes, many nations have been completely wiped out by famine. Look for a moment at this account there, starting in chapter 47, verse 13. Look at, look at 47, 13, description of the famine. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Look at that emphasis there. No food, all the land, very severe. And not just in one place or the other, but there was nowhere to go. Egypt and Canaan were were alike without food. The word languished speaks of a wasting away. You can feel the, the quiet desperation of the people. What follows in the, in the verses to come are, are a description of how Joseph disperses all of that grain that he stored up over years, first in exchange for money, and then in exchange for livestock, and then finally the people come. Look at verse 19. They've got nothing left. They, they say, why should, we die, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So that's what he does. He he buys up the land for Pharaoh and then charges them a a 20% tax on the produce of the land. Some people have wrongly read this text as as a cruel thing that Joseph is doing there, enslaving the people. But But I think they're not paying attention when they read it that way. Look at verse 25, what they say. You have saved our lives. 
It's really a double provision here because he's providing food for his people to keep them alive and for the Egyptians who who get this reprieve and a chance to believe in the God of Jacob. So he provides offspring. He provides food. The third thing we see him providing in these two chapters is land, land in Egypt for them to settle in this land of Goshen. Go back to chapter 46, verse 31, and let's read a stretch here. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers." in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And Joseph knew what he was doing because that that was the instruction that he's giving to his family. This is what's going to happen when we go before Pharaoh. And look at the beginning of chapter 47. That's exactly what happens. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as their fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. I wonder if you can notice how shrewd Joseph is here, how he he works to prepare the right answers to the questions that are coming. He even lets slip there in verse 1 to Pharaoh, they're they're already in Goshen, just so you know. They're there right now. That kind of sets Pharaoh up to say, well, let them stay in Goshen then. I mean, this is wise real estate purchasing here. I think something that should be attractive to Singaporeans. When it says there that Egyptians didn't like shepherds, uh, it's because they, they tended to be nomadic peoples, uh, nomadic peoples instead of city dwellers, which was more like what the, the Egyptians were here. So there's, there's a little, little bit of prejudice going on against the Xiangxia Ren, the, the people from the Nongsun, the, the village, okay? That's what's going on here. Nomadic peoples also tended to, to be raiders, that they were feared in many ways. So Pharaoh's happy to put them in the fields away from town. But, but put all that provision together, offspring, food, and land. Can, can you just see how God is providing for his people? What's fascinating to me, if we just look at Joseph and, and, and his part that he plays in all of this, I, I love how he's a picture of a man who believes as strongly as you can believe in the sovereignty of God, And yet, he's constantly using his mind to work to the best of his ability. Have you seen that in his life as we've gone through these chapters? 
I mean, do you remember what he said in the, in the previous chapters to his brothers? Remember the, these, these brothers who have wronged him so much. He said to them, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He's just constantly putting those two things together. And at the same time, he, he's just, his mind is constantly working. I, I think in a, in a wise and a good way here. He would probably sum up this account by saying, God provided the land of Goshen. And yet he, he didn't sit back as if he was supposed to do nothing. And he would be right in the way he describes it because the plans could have not worked. It's God ultimately who brought them to pass. So, brothers and sisters, I think we should take note here. A robust belief and confidence in the sovereignty of God in all things should in no way make us mentally lazy, physically lazy, spiritually lazy. Taking our cue from Joseph, it seems that we should be the best civil servant. That's, that's what he is here, the the best medical doctor, the best stay-at-home mom, the best high school student, the best consultant, whatever consultants do. We should be the best at what we do. Use our mind while realizing that it's all ultimately in God's hand. Our trust is in him. But the application point for us from this, this first point has to be whether we trust in God's provision. I want you to stop and think about that question. How does trust in God's provision show up in your life? You know, when Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he meant us to be praying that prayer every day. It's a prayer, Lord, provide for me all that I need to do what you have called me to do. That's a prayer that should be regularly on our lips. And Jesus meant us to pray that prayer and then to rest in the fact that he'll answer it. So often I think that we respond rather in anxiety as we see the needs that we have rather than prayer. Maybe you're in a time of plenty right now and, and, and you've ceased to, to pray that prayer because you're confidence, confident in what you've accumulated. Maybe you're anxious this morning. You need to turn from that anxiety to trust. Uh, our goal is to be able to say with Paul, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul calls it a, a secret that has to be learned and we learn it by exercising the, the muscles of trust that God will provide. You know, I, I think that so much discontent is among us and certainly out in the city that we live in, not because we don't have enough, but because we don't have as much as the next person. Beloved, don't compare yourself with anyone else. Trust in the Lord to provide when we see the way God provided for Israel here, we're, we're reminded that God will provide for us, so we should trust him on earth. That's our first point. Let's consider our second point. We should trust him on earth while making our home with him in heaven, making our home with him in heaven. You know, these are, these are the final days of Jacob. 
the third in the trilogy of patriarchs that has taken up so much of the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, sets the stage for redemptive history that's to come. I wonder what you think of Jacob as a character, as a biblical character. What, what do you think about him? I love Jacob because he, he's, he's the least likely person to be chosen as a father of redemptive history. Do you remember what Jacob was like as a young man? I mean, his name means heel grabber, and what we saw from him in his early years was, was constantly trying to outwit everyone around him. I'm going to outwit the world and use my own cunning to get what I want. In many ways, he was a, a liar, a cheat, and a thief. And then God met him, first in a vision, a dream that he had, and then an angel of the Lord wrestling him by the Jabbok River. We called this series Generations of Grace because God's grace is what transforms a person. And we've seen that in Jacob's life, haven't we? So in these two chapters, what we get to ponder is not how Jacob started his life, but how he finished his life. Not how he started the race, but how he finished the race. We get four different glimpses in these two chapters of how he finished the race. So, so four things about Jacob. First, we see him seeking God's face. He seeks God's face. Look back there at chapter 46, verse 1 again. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. You know, I think this shows us that he doesn't want to leave Canaan. You may, you may not kind of put that together, but, but remember, Canaan is the land that was promised to him. I think he stops to worship here in some ways because he needs assurance that he's supposed to be doing this. He needs guidance, and, and that's exactly what God provides, right? God speaks to him in the vision of the night and says, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God is providing guidance for him because he's uncertain. But, but notice that in the midst of his uncertainty, he's seeking God. He's seeking God's face. That's the first kind of snapshot of, of what Jacob is like as an older man, seeking God. Secondly, he's a man who now understands God's providence. He understands God's providence. Look at chapter 46, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are alive. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. It's a beautiful scene here. But for Jacob, I don't think it's just the joy of seeing his son. It certainly is that. But it's a resolution of his wrestling with God. 
Uh, he, he's named, he, he struggles, he wrestles with God. That's, that's what Israel means. But because his whole life, he's been wrestling with God. Did, did you notice as we worked through the last number of chapters how often uh, self-pity creeps into Jacob's words? I mean, how often do we hear him say, I will go down to the grave mourning for my son? It's at least three or four times in the text. Now, we, the reader, were like, no, you're not. No, we, we know what's going to happen. <laughs> but all the facts weren't known to him at that earlier point. But here, finally, he can connect the dots of God's providence. Now he understands. And his words, they're, they're remarkably similar. Do you remember aged Simeon in the temple when he first sees the baby Jesus, and he, he says, he, in Latin, it's nunc dimittis. This is called the nunc dimittis of the Old Testament, which is just, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Just a beautiful thing. He, he understands now as an old man God's providence. The third snapshot of Jacob, he fulfills God's purposes. Jacob fulfills God's purposes. Look at chapter 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. It's a remarkable scene. You know, you know the greater blesses the lesser. Here's this impoverished, starving old man from a a smaller land who's now standing before the, the great and powerful Pharaoh, and he stands up to bless him. He's fulfilling the, the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that those who bless you, I will bless. That's what God promised. So, so because Egypt is blessing the, the, the family of Israel, he stands up and pronounces a blessing on Pharaoh. I, that's so powerful in so many ways that he would see himself as, as having this spiritual role to play. I don't know exactly what the fruit of that would have been. I, I don't know if all that the, the Egyptians saw in the, the salvation from famine that came through this, this people of Israel would have led them to believe in the God of Israel. I don't know that, but, but take the, the, the picture here of Jacob being used by God to communicate to him. I, I wonder what you make of Jacob's words there. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. The, the word evil there I think is better translated bad. It's usually translated as bad. I'm not sure why they went for evil. But, but basically he says, few and bad have been the days of the years of my life. I mean, maybe you think Jacob's just being melancholy. Uh, maybe you relate to him. I certainly do. I'm kind of a melancholy guy. A few and, and bad. But I think he's actually describing his life pretty literally. Uh, can we stop and think about what Jacob's life has been like? 
I mean, as a young man and his family growing up, there was constant strife with his brother. He eventually had to run away from home because his brother what? Yeah, just wanted to kill him. He goes to his uncle, and what kind of a reception does he have from his uncle? Well, his uncle, you know, plots against him. The, The schemer gets schemed. He gets 20 years of labor out of him. He gets him to marry the wrong woman. He had a difficult marriage that he had to struggle through. He does get to marry his beloved Rachel, but Rachel dies early in childbirth. They say, well, he can take comfort in his children, but, but a number of his children just made terrible choices. He, he watched them make choices that indicated that, that they probably don't have any faith. We're going to get to chapter 49 and and see that, I think, pretty clearly. I mean, think about the heartache that this man has known when he says, few and bad have been the days of the years of my life. I think we can agree with him. And yet, what's he doing? Is he bitter? Is he bitter towards God? No, he's still seeking to be used. I think we can take an encouragement, first of all, for the the older saints among us who have been an example to us of continuing to commit their lives to this local body of believers, still seek to be used. If you're an older saint, take encouragement from Jacob. Use the last years that the Lord has given you to serve others. Those of us that are younger, we should aspire to that kind of faithfulness all the way to the end. Even in the midst of the hardships of life, let's serve. I love the words of that song, afflicted saint to Christ draw near. Your Savior's gracious promises here. His faithful word you can believe that as your days, your strength will be. That's beautiful. Jacob fulfills God's purposes. Fourth and final snapshot of Jacob here at the end. His home is with God. His home is with God. Look at chapter 47, verse 29. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph, said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me. In Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. There's some dispute about the best way to translate that final word of the chapter, their bed. The, The Hebrew original text is consonants only. Uh, the vowels were, were not in the original. Uh, they would have been vocalized as they, 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 they spoke the words, but uh, about a thousand years later, the Masoretes had to put vowels to the, to the consonants. And um, you'll notice in Hebrews chapter 11, that describes this very thing, 1121 has it that he was bowing in worship at the head of his staff. That's because staff and bed, if you just... The vowel pointings, uh, anyway, it's, it's not that important. No Hebrew lesson this morning, but um, the important thing is that he's worshiping 
after having given this final important charge to his son, do not bury me in Egypt. Now, this is a strange request to us because it doesn't much matter where you and I are buried. I was thinking as I was preparing this, I don't even know, are there cemeteries in in Singapore? It doesn't seem like there would be enough land for that, but maybe there are. No, I've walked through one. It's older graves. Anyway, um, my, my dad's family, he comes from a family of six children. Uh, his parents bought 14 burial plots. So for mom and dad and then for uh, the, the husband and wife, each of the six kids. But I remember family reunions growing up, they were constantly talking about the burial plots because different ones of them didn't want to use it and they'd be buried somewhere else. And then it was like, who gets to be buried there? It seemed utterly pointless to me. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter where you and I are buried. So what's this all about? Jacob wants his remains carried up out of Egypt. That's what's going to happen later. Chapter 50, Joseph's going to give instructions about his own bones. Same thing, he wants to be buried in Canaan. In Hebrews chapter 11, they get commended for this. This is a really big deal. But I think it's because you and I miss something as we read the text of Genesis. Sometimes the New Testament writers see things that we don't see. So I want to unravel this for you in in a couple steps. So, So why is where they're buried so important? First, Genesis 23, Abraham is grieving the death of his beloved Sarah, and he wants to purchase a burial plot for her in the promised land. So he, you may remember he enters this kind of long, elaborate negotiation with the Hittites for a cave, the cave of Machpelah. And it, it's kind of a funny negotiation because the Hittites are like, ah, what's, what's a little bit of silver between friends? And then uh, there's this kind of polite back and forth. But, but Genesis 23, 4, very important. We'd miss it if we just read by quickly. This is what Abraham says to them. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Sounds like he's just saying, I'm not from around here. I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner. But when we turn to Hebrews 11, and I actually want you to turn there and see this with your own eyes, because the The author of the book of Hebrews sees something much more in his words. I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. So we're going to read Hebrews 11, 13. But this is after, right after, the author has talked about the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. talks about Sarah and the things they did by faith. Okay, so Hebrews 11, 13. These all, these patriarchs, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, that that language of strangers and exiles, that's the same thing that, that Abraham was saying, sojourner, same language. But when he says having acknowledged, he's not just talking rhetorically there. He means they said it. Somewhere they said it. So I think he's referencing Genesis 23-4. I think he's also referencing chapter 47 that we just read about Jacob before Pharaoh saying the, the, the days of the years of my sojourn are 130. And they haven't reached the level of, 
of the sojourning of my fathers. So there's the same language. So Abraham, Jacob, same language. And while they're standing in the promised land, they're calling themselves a sojourner and a foreigner. Well, what does that mean? I mean, to sojourn means to live somewhere as a stranger, as a pilgrim. It's not my home. So that, that's what the inspired writer is, is, is meaning to talk about. Let's keep going. Hebrews eleven fourteen. now. People who speak thus, people who talk like that, like I'm a sojourner, a foreigner, make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land that they'd gone out from, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Can you see what's happening there? It's amazing. Uh, but, but how does this connect to the bones exactly? Well, apparently, when we see Jacob grabbing Joseph and saying, don't bury me in Egypt, we're supposed to first think, oh, okay, he wants to connect himself with the, the promise of God to him of a promised land, but then we're to take a step further and think, oh, but it isn't really that earthly land that he's even thinking about when he says that. He, he's, he's, he's wanting to, to make a statement about the fact that his homeland is actually in heaven with God. He's desiring a better country, a heavenly one. I hope that that makes sense. Uh, it, it's amazing in many ways, but when we see them giving instructions about being wanting to be buried in the promised land, that's what we're supposed to think of. What does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for you and me? I think it means lots. The, the Christian life is a life lived between two worlds. <coughs> Excuse me. We live here. We're supposed to do good here. We're supposed to do good work. But our home is supposed to be in heaven. <coughs> We're supposed to live as if this land doesn't have any lasting possessions for us. So do you live like that? Do you live like this world is not your home? What should that look like in my life? One thing it should look like is giving your life to God's people. Sometimes people say, oh, I, I love the Lord, certainly excited to be with the Lord in heaven, but his, his people on earth in the church, it's kind of hard for me to get along with them. Well, that's a contradiction. If you love the Lord, then you love his people. I hope that you'll commit yourself to the life of a local church. If you're not a member of a local church, that's job one in your Christian life. You say, ah, it's kind of difficult people. And yeah, yeah, we're difficult. You're supposed to lock arms with us. You're supposed to live out all that the Lord has called you to live out and the one another's. Love one another, pray for one another, serve one another in love, bear with one another. So give yourself to the life of a local church. Another thing that that's supposed to look like is repenting of the ways in which we find our, our hearts drawn too much to the things of the world. One way you can kind of diagnose what, what, what you've started investing too much of your heart in is think, what if you lost it would cause you to go to pieces? 
you get, when you when a financial setback happens for you, you know, you, you were kind of hoping to get here, and now it looks like I'm only going to get to here. Do you go to pieces? What happens when that career setback, that career-limiting move happens, and you realize, well, I think this is about all it's going to be? Do you go to pieces? I think it can happen with our children. We can make our children an idol. Thank you so much, Yuting. She sees me suffering and serves me. We love our kids. We want to do the best we can with them. We have no guarantee exactly what it's going to look like for them. We trust ultimately that they will come to faith. But, but when you see your kids struggling spiritually or otherwise in life, do you go to pieces? See, all of those things are clues of things that we're holding on to too much. We make our home in heaven. We see that as the treasure. That is the very great reward that we're longing for, that we're straining for. We should conclude. We began with this question of how to connect the dots of our lives. That's what Steve Jobs was talking about in his famous speech As many do today, he urges us to believe that all the hard things really do work together for you if you just see it that way. The last story Steve Jobs tells is a story about death. He received a a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Uh, They they told him that it was inoperable and that he should say his goodbyes. Uh, So he did that. And then it turned out a later test revealed that that he he, uh, could have an operation Uh, ended up giving him six more years of life before it recurred. Uh, But he talks about the the need to say his goodbyes as being a really useful thing. Listen to what he says about death. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. That's what he said, your heart. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, maybe you find that very inspiring. I would urge you to see that as very, very empty. Uh, That ultimately is is a worldview in which you say, this world is all there is. Make the best of it. You only go around once. But friend, there's a God who made you. And he made you for more than that. He, He made you to know him. Now, you can't know him in your current state because... If you're a sinner, then you're, you're, you have a broken relationship with him. You're, you're separated from him. He's a holy God, and you're a sinner. You've done things by thought, word, and deed that offend his holiness. You have a need to be reconciled to him. But friend, that's exactly what God wants for you. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. Jesus Christ lived the life that you and I should have lived, a life of perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. He did that so when he died on a a Roman cross, he could take on himself the penalty for sin that you and I deserve to pay. 
He took that penalty on himself, dying and then rising from the grave, so that if anybody, any of us, will trust in him, will put our faith in him, then our sins can be forgiven and we can have that reconciled relationship with God. I pray that you'll think about that this morning and that you'll actually do that, that you'll be reconciled with God. You see, if you do that, then you have so much more than Steve Jobs talked about. The the Christian is one who says, yeah, in a sense we had everything to lose, but now we have everything to gain. We have eternal life to gain. We have heaven to gain. We were naked, but now we've been clothed because of what he's been done. And so now there's no reason not to follow him. That's the glorious good news of Christianity. And this connects all the dots of our lives. The God who has so loved us in Christ promises to provide all that we need. Give us this day our daily bread, and he will. And he allows us to make our home with him in heaven, which is so much better than any home that we could make here. So trust his provision on earth while making your home with him in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, you've been so good to us in Christ. We pray that you would give us faith to believe and to trust and to follow. You would remind us this morning of the great hope for us that is stored up in heaven. We eagerly await your return and we can be with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.